Good evening. Did you bring a Bible? Open to a passage you know well. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, probably the most famous passage on the Nativity, and one that you know well. In fact, I know some of you have taught this passage before. It's always a, a, a rich um, privilege to teach a passage that people know and to seek to draw us into the freshness of it again. The problem with knowing passages well is that we tend to think we know everything about it and we just kind of run ahead of it. But I don't want to do that this evening. I want you to remember that the incarnation of God the Son is the great miracle that transforms the destiny of humanity. There are three great miracles in the Bible, creation itself, the incarnation, and the recreation at the end of time. When you think of the biblical story, imagine in your mind the entire picture of it, because that's how God sees it, the entire picture. Creation, then we goofed it up, of course, and then he rescues it single-handedly, that's incarnation. And from the time of the, from the moment of the incarnation, when God became a human permanently, and he still is a human, he's a risen human, The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is a risen human. From that moment on, the resurrection of the entire universe was a foregone conclusion. It could not not happen. And that resurrection of the whole universe is the last two chapters of the Revelation. So you have the creation. You have us goofing it up. You have God saying, if you want something done right, what? Do it yourself. He literally, listen, he literally becomes one of us permanently. And for God to enter his own creation blew the minds of all the angels, of all the heavenly hosts. We're going to read about that. That's why they show up. And that's why they're praising God. And from that moment on, the salvation of the universe could not not happen. And remember this. When you're invited into the Lord Jesus, when you're invited to believe in him, you enter that story at whatever moment you put your faith in Christ. It's amazing. So as we read this, even though it's rather mundane, I mean, it's, and we're going to see that. I'm going to, I'm going to read the first 20 verses of chapter two of, uh, of Luke's gospel. And you know the story well. I'll draw out a few things and then I'm going to unpack it a little bit and let us meditate on some questions that are here. Chapter 2 of Luke, in uh, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is for taxation purposes. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. You say, why does he bother putting that in there? It's to show us that this really happened in history. This isn't uh, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Okay? This is not once upon a time. And the Bible's filled with this kind of detail, especially Luke's material is. Um, so he puts this in here. He tells us when it is. It's about the year 30 AD is when this takes place. And everybody went to be registered, each to his own town, meaning his ancestral home. Now, David was born in Bethlehem, so all of the descendants of David had to go back to Bethlehem. David was a thousand years prior to this. There are a lot of descendants of David, okay, among whom Joseph. So that's why the the town is so crowded. 
Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, which is about 70 to 90 miles north of Bethlehem. He went to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And uh, and when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, we don't know how long they were there, um, but they were probably there for quite a while prior to her giving birth. She was at least three months along because she had been with Elizabeth for a while. And so she was at least three months along. She may have been five, six months along, whatever. And some people speculate maybe that's why Joseph said, you're coming with me because she would have been showing. And in Nazareth, which wasn't a very big town, people did do math. And she was pregnant. And as Travis pointed out in his message, um, this would have created all kinds of shame. It's interesting because Mary lived with a misunderstanding about her life, uh, all of her life from here on. And uh, she said, I will serve the Lord and I don't care if I'm misunderstood. It's very interesting. But it could be that Joseph said, let's go together and uh, and go down to Bethlehem or up to Bethlehem because it's it's a higher elevation. And uh and we and she may have been there may have been there a month or two. Uh so it wasn't, you know, like the picture in the postcards where you have this girl who looks like she's 9 months pregnant and riding a donkey, right? And she's coming in and has a baby immediately when she gets there. And there's a mean innkeeper who says, "No! Go and live in a cave." That that none of that happened, okay? She probably went much earlier than that, and they went there to get some government business done. How long does it take to get government business done? Right? So they were there maybe a month or two, and then and they might have been thinking, if we hurry up and get this done, we can get back to Nazareth where the family is. No, because Micah 5.2 says Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. And so they're there, and the time is comes for her to uh, give birth. And so she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in, a, in swaddling cloths. This was not unusual. They'd strap the babies, wrap them uh, to keep them nice and tight and warm. But it is unusual to lay them in a manger uh, because there was no place for them in the inn. It's not a Motel 6 type inn. It, it, was, it literally means just an extra room because every extra room anywhere in this town was taken up because of so many people there. And so when they got there, <clears throat> there wasn't a place for them to stay. And people in those days uh, lived in, uh, they lived right close to their animals. In fact, some of the houses were uh, two-story, and the top story was where the people lived, and the bottom story was where the animals lived. And some of them were all on the ground floor, but then they had uh, a different room where the animals were. So there was no room where humans were living, and so they probably pushed some of the animals out and that's where Joseph and Mary uh, were when she gave birth. The tradition says that it's it was in a cave, and they used caves. It could have been. They used caves for animals. And if you go to Bethlehem today and you go to visit uh, the Church of the Nativity, uh, you'll, you'll see a cave that they traditionally thought was the one. Maybe it is. We don't know. But we do know this. It was radically inconvenient, and there was no indoor plumbing. Okay? So I want you to bear in mind the difficulty. We'll get back to it in a minute. So she lays him in a manger. There was no place 
in the extra rooms there. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping their flocks, watching over their flocks by night. That's why we sing, O Holy Night. And the fact that he was born at night is really important because it's a picture of the nature of the world before God comes into it. Okay, It's the darkness. It's an important thing. They're watching their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Now, the shepherds, um, we'll talk about them more in a second, but th- what's happening here is one angel shows up, and and he's not just glowing. The entire Shekinah glory envelops these guys, these shepherds. So they are petrified. This light literally uh, overwhelms them. And this is the glory of the Lord. That's the Shekinah glory that dwelt no, uh, in the Old Testament. It dwelt between the two angels on the, on the uh, lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you guys all know what the Ark of the Covenant is? Yeah? Yeah? Indiana Jones? You saw that? That's actually a decent facsimile of what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like. And those angels with the, with the wings pointed at each other, there was a glow in between them. And that's literally the presence of God. That's the Shekinah glory. That's what's happening here. Except it's enveloping these uh, shepherds. No wonder they're frightened. And the angel comes and speaks with them. It's probably Gabriel. It doesn't say which angel. But Gabriel did uh, the conversation with Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's dad. And he did the conversation with Mary. And he probably volunteered for this one too. Can you imagine the... Angel break room, uh, break room, the angel break room. They're talking about what, who gets to do this one? Who gets it? Gabriel goes, I outrank all of you. I'm going to do this. And besides, it's so fun. Every time we get to talk to these people, they fall over and they're scared. And that's what happens again here. So the angel comes and he says, don't be afraid. That's the first thing they always have to say. Don't be afraid. I'm bringing you. Good news. It's interesting how often good news follows something fearful when you, you think something bad is happening and the Lord says, I have some good news. I'm bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, all the people. For unto you is born this day famous, famous words in the city of David and notice the three titles, a savior, that's a rescuer. That's what the Greek word means, a rescuer who is Messiah, that's the word Christ in Greek, Messiah, and Lord, and that's the word for, that's the word used in the Old Testament Greek version of the Old Testament. It's used for Yahweh, for God. So you have a rescuer who is Messiah and who is actually God in the flesh, and we'll see that even more clearly. So, now the, the, the shepherds are hearing this. So we're so familiar with this passage that we kind of read into it and think maybe they understood. They did not understand very much of what this was. Uh, there's an announcement of something amazing. They're, they're scared. And, and they hear these words. They really don't get all of it, but they remember what's being said. And this will be a sign for you that uh, said the angel. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, cloths. That's not so terribly unusual, but lying in a manger, that's unusual. And the implication is you're going to go there. I'm telling you about this, and you're going to go there. 
And then the scene changes. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. And that word host there is a military term. It means army. So it's an army, but they're not fighting. They're worshiping. Very interesting. In the Old Testament, it talks about the Lord of hosts. Have you ever seen that in the Old Testament? It means the Lord of the heavenly armies. And the, the, it's this massive multitude means, uh, it means an uncounted number. So the, so the shepherds are seeing and hearing from this angel. And then this uncounted number all around them, man, it would, wouldn't that freak you out? And they're praising God. It doesn't say they're singing, but we kind of assume. We just make an assumption that they're singing. We don't know. There's only two creatures that can sing, by the way. Angels and humans. And only one of those creatures can sing a redeemed song. And that is a redeemed human. And a group of redeemed humans can sing redeemed songs. Um, Unredeemed humanity can't sing the songs of redemption and mean it. So there is something very unique when there is singing going on. And if the angels are singing, they are worshiping God. And they're saying, glory to God in the highest. Now that means glory to God in the heavenlies. Our Father who art in heaven, it's a real place. It's another dimension. And and in the heavenlies, this amazing reality is being witnessed that God is becoming a human being. And then he says, on earth... And notice the scene change. You've got in the heavenlies, glory to God. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the ESV rendering. NASB rendering is the same. Um, NIV says, peace among those upon whom his favor rests. It does not say what the old King James translation was. Um, Peace on earth, goodwill to men, as if God were just saying, hey, I'm in favor of everybody. That's not actually what it's saying. What it's saying is, there's going to be a special kind of peace for the people that belong to me. That's what he's really saying. With those whom he, with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. Now, I don't know what that would have looked like. You're looking at all these angelic creatures and you're surrounded by light. And then you, and then all of a sudden they start filing out like this gigantic choir going, going. Is heaven a real place that you just can't see? Yeah, it is. And that's exactly what happens. They move off the scene and then it gets dark again. What were the shepherds doing? Probably seeing spots for a few minutes anyway. And then, and they say to each other, we got to go to Bethlehem. And they would have been probably eh, a quarter mile away. The hills around Bethlehem, they st- you can still go there. Uh, and you can still see how they would have been. In fact, one year we were there with a group and a shepherd with a bunch of sheep came by. And it's, uh, it's, you know, very natural, normal, but not very far from the town. So we got to go to Bethlehem, they said, and see this thing that happened that the Lord has made known to us. And they went and they, in haste and they found Mary and Joseph. They come running into Bethlehem. It's nighttime. There would be a few torches and lamps and stuff like that. And they'd be saying to people, hey, hey, did a baby get born here? We're looking for a baby. Um, and someone says, yes, yes. There was a young woman and she had a baby and some of our ladies were helping her and stuff. And it's right down there and it's in that little stable or wherever. And so they go, you know, 
They go running up <laughs> and see Joseph and Mary, and they saw the baby lying in a manger. Um, so they come in, they burst in on the scene, and you've got people, nobody, these people don't all know each other. The shepherds know each other. They don't know Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph don't know the shepherds, and the shepherds just come in, and the way that they can identify the baby is because he's in a manger, and they go, this must be the one. By the way, it did not say, look for the baby that's glowing in the dark. Okay? And we kind of think this, you know, you see these pictures and stuff, you know, where it has this little, I remember seeing, <laughs> I remember seeing one instruction about a church, a church production about the birth of Christ. And it said, you know, this shepherd is being played by this boy and this shepherd is being played by this person and this person and, the, and Joseph is this person and Mary is this girl. And, and then it said, Jesus will be played by a 60 watt light bulb. Well, okay, that's not it. The way they had to tell if it was Jesus was they had to look and see if for a baby in a manger. That was the one thing. The unique thing is that um, it was so inconvenient the way he was born. He had to be laid in a feeding trough. So when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. So there would have been other people around. Um, because, okay, ladies, if you're in a little village, even though it's overcrowded, and there's a 15-year-old girl and she's given birth to a baby, what are you going to do? You're going to help. There would have been a bunch of women around, probably, who had helped her and other extended family members that were descendants of David or families of descendants of David. There would have been other people there. And and the uh, the shepherds come rushing in and they say, you know what about this child? Do you know what this is about? We just saw a whole bunch of angels. And everybody's going, whoa. They made known the saying to the other people. And all who heard it wondered. They wondered at what the shepherds had told them. By the way, um, when you hear the gospel, when you hear about God becoming a human being, if you've never heard it before, the first thing you do is wonder. And that's perfectly okay. You should wonder. And you will probably hear it from someone who knows, but notice the angels didn't come and talk to all these people. It was the shepherds that did. And the people wondered. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So she's just quiet, apparently. And she's listening to everything. And she's remembering what Gabriel told her nine months ago. And what Elizabeth confirmed when, they, when she was with Elizabeth. And she's thinking, she still doesn't know. You know, you as a Christian today, or even if you haven't given your life to Christ, you probably know more about what's going on here. Uh, than Joseph and Mary did, or even the, or even the shepherds. And, uh, that's because God is always doing more than He's telling us. But she treasured these things, treasures these things in her heart. And you can imagine what she might have been thinking. The shepherds returned, they were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Okay, now I want to ask some questions, and we'll unpack it a little bit. First of all, well, I'll tell you the four questions. Number one, why the government? Number two, why the stress? Number three, why the shepherds? And number four, why the angels? Number one, why the government? Why does Luke 
point out that this is a government decision that has to move everybody there so that Christ is born in Bethlehem. Let me offer a couple of thoughts. First of all, it's because God is in charge of human history. And his kingdom will be accomplished. He actually moves the entire Roman Empire just to make sure that Jesus is born where God decided to have him born, according to Micah 5.2. You know, sometimes we forget just how sovereign and providential God is over the world and how important his kingdom is. And secondly, notice the importance of providence itself. Providence is the idea that there are certain things outside our control. I know we hate to admit that, but there's a ton. Of, you, you don't control hardly anything in your life. But God does. And notice, he uses providence to arrange for the birth of the Son of God. That means there are certain things that take place around us that we have to simply say, that's out of my control. All I can do is trust that God is at work and seek to respond obediently obediently to it. God uses providence in our lives all the time. If it's good enough for Jesus to be born then providence is a very good thing that God uses to guide us in our lives at times. Do you have situations that you're worried about that you have no control over? Perhaps the Lord is doing something behind the scenes and all you need to do is say, Lord, I just want to trust you. I just want to do what you told me. So he uses the government. How can that possibly be? I tell you, the Roman government was worse than ours. I know some of you find that hard to believe. But if God can use Nero and Augustus and, and these Roman emperors, then he can use you-know-who and, and whoever's the next one, too. You belong to the Christian friend, listen to me. You belong to the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is going to win. The kingdom of God is going to win. So the government, God uses it. Number two, why the stress? Verses 5 to 7. It's overcrowded. It's inconvenient. They thought maybe they were going to get back to Nazareth. It didn't work out the way they planned. There's there's traffic jams and not enough food, and it's not fun at all. Why the stress? Let me suggest it's to redeem the most difficult things we go through. If where Jesus was born and the way he was born was very stressful and not convenient, then that means there's a ton of inconvenient, stressful situations that you and I deal with that God can still use and he's still at work in it. You know, they might have said to themselves, he could have, Mary and Joseph, God had actually talked to them. The angels had talked to them. Of course, it was months ago, but nevertheless, they might have gotten to this point and thought to themselves, this could have been better organized. Why the stress? Why the stress of the birth of Christ, the Messiah, the Lord? And it's still joyful. The angels are very excited, but it's stressful. Why? It's a reminder to us that living in a fallen world is stressful. And our lives have a lot of stress in them, even at Christmas. In fact, sometimes even more at Christmas. And we, t- and we tend to think, well, that doesn't sound very warm and fuzzy. There's nothing here that's sentimental in this whole story. It's not very warm and fuzzy. It's joyful and powerful, but it's not warm and fuzzy. And if your life doesn't feel warm and fuzzy right now, that doesn't mean God is not at work, especially if there's stress. So why the government? Because God is providential and he moves heaven and earth to accomplish his will. Why the stress? 
because life is stressful, and Jesus came into it in exactly the same kind of life we have, very normal, very stressful. Third, why the shepherds? Um, they were at the low end of the of the social norm, as you probably know. Um, they weren't necessarily crooks and robbers. Some people think later they were accused of such things in the centuries later. But they were definitely not even middle, what we would call middle class, and way far from being at the top of the echelon. They were they were very normal people. They lived outside. They were generally ceremonially unclean because they're always dealing with sheep. Why would God come and say, I'm appearing, and all my angels are appearing? Can you imagine the angels saying, okay, here we go, here we go, here we go, and the curtain rises, and there's a half a dozen scruffy-looking dudes on the edge of a hill with a bunch of sheep. Who publicized this? Why would God do such a thing? Well, first and foremost, because God doesn't care who he hangs out with. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus was this way all through his ministry. Um, not necessarily outcasts, but li- listen carefully. These were people who cared more about grace than they did about prestige. Jesus always worked with people who simply came to him because they didn't have a franchise in the world. And that's exactly what the shepherds were. They didn't have a franchise in the world. They were not important. Um. And don't we try to be important? <laughs> Jesus, from the from his very birth, starts with common, normal, even subnormal people and works among them. Also, he does this to keep it from becoming too sentimental. Um, you look at this, it's not a sentimental picture at all. These are normal guys doing a, doing a kind of a subnormal job Life is really, really real, and then we sentimentalize it and airbrush it all, and then we think, well, I'm not living up because I don't feel sentimentally warm about everything all the time. Look at the realism of these shepherds. It's There's nothing sentimental about it, and we've kind of done a disservice by sentimentalizing a lot of it. Uh, the shepherds did not go back to their sheep singing White Christmas. We have an enormous number. I'm not down on the traditions. It's fine. It's fine. We have some good, you know, Jesus said it's okay to have traditions. He said just don't worship them. But this original, what happens here, very joyful, but not sentimental. It was like this has really happened. What do you think? They hadn't written any songs about it yet. They hadn't built any big churches over these places. They hadn't done anything. Why? Because the miracle itself is what's important. That's what's important. So he picks the shepherds. He says he doesn't go to Jerusalem. Um, take note, too, that he uses the shepherds to bear witness of who Christ is. The angels do not go to Jerusalem and coerce faith. If angels show up, people believe. If, 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 if everybody, if they went to Jerusalem and did this, all of Jerusalem would have been hoofing it over to Bethlehem. And he specifically didn't do that. He said, I'm going to talk to normal people. I'm going to talk to people other people might not even want to talk to. And then I'm going to use them. They saw the angels and they heard what, what probably Gabriel said. But everybody else only heard the shepherds. Why? Because God uses normal people to simply bear witness of who God is. He uses normal people to bear witness of who God is. Why? 
class. Why? I'll tell you why. One reason is to make room for unbelief. If an angel if an angel shows up, you don't have a choice whether to believe. But when your next door neighbor, who you might not even like all that much, says, the Lord has changed my life. I've come to Jesus Christ. I have been born again. I, I am a Christian, and God is telling the truth. Jesus is who he says he is. You have an option because God's not coercing. He's not sending an angel. A lot of people say, well, if God wanted to save me, he'd send an angel like he did with these. That's not how it works. He sends normal people to normal people with a stunningly amazing message. And then that gives everybody a chance to say, do I want to trust God or not? He leaves room for unbelief by using simple witness. So he uses the shepherds. That's why the shepherds. He shows that God doesn't care. He doesn't care about your position in the world at all. Um, in fact, he made that abundantly clear in Luke 16. He said, um, that which is highly esteemed among humans is detestable in the eyes of God. He doesn't care about any prestige. He, he comes to people who are simply willing to say, I need grace more than I need prestige. I need you, Lord, more than I need what the world offers. So the government, the stress, the shepherds, and what about the angels? Ah, why the angels? Here's why the angels. Because the entire angelic community and the entire invisible realm. By the way, if you do become a Christian, you know you have to understand there is an invisible realm. It's called the heavenlies. That entire realm was waiting for this moment, and the Lord tears back the veil for a short period of time, and all the angels who could crowd in, crowded in as part of that army, so that they could say, this is the most important thing that's happened ever since the creation of the world. That's why the angels are actually this, doing this. It's that powerful. And it means at least three things, and you'll see it in verses 14 and verse, verse 14, verse 10, and then uh, verse 11. Have a look at this. Three major things. First of all, it's a guarantee of peace that we cannot create. He says, uh, glory to God in the highest on earth, Peace among those with whom he is pleased. A guarantee of peace that we cannot create. That's what he's bringing here. We hear a lot about peace in our world. And a lot of people are trying utopian schemes to try and make it work. And God knows that there needs to be peace. But he's not talking about political peace that we create. He can't possibly be. Because Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, you're going to see wars and you're going to see rumors of wars for this entire for this entire age. What, what is he talking about then? He's talking about peace with God. He's talking about, because there can't be peace among humans until there's peace with God, because humanity is not rightly related to God. That's why he became one of us, so that he could reconcile us. And that brings peace. Now, some of you are thinking, you're getting sleepy. So I want you to turn to Isaiah and have a look. He's talking about the kingdom, Isaiah chapter 9, Pastor Bill taught on this on Wednesday night. Famous passage used at Christmas time, Isaiah 9. 
He's talking about a kind of peace that comes to you from God that sets you right with God when you come into his kingdom through his son. It's peace with God so that you know that he's with you. And it's a kingdom he's talking about in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That means he's a king and he has a kingdom and he's drawing you in. That brings peace. And his name shall be called Wonder Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I would love to preach on these, but I will restrain myself. Of the increase of his government and of peace, shalom. There will be no end, no end to the increase of peace. Isn't that a weird way to think? No end to the increase of peace when this king reigns. Now listen, when you come into Christ, when you give your life to Christ, you enter into that reign where he's your Lord. And inside in your heart, between you and God the Father, because of the Lord Jesus, there's this peace between you and God. And he says, I'm with you. To um, the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. The things we do not see in our world, never have seen this perfectly in our world. From this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the peace that they're talking about here. And it's a peace humans cannot create. We can't actually make it. It has to be given to us as a gift. Um, when that peace comes... Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, my peace I give to you, not like the world gives it. I'm giving you my peace. You're in me. You have peace with God. Um, have we got time? Do we? Do we really have time? Look at Colossians chapter 1. When you talk about peace with God... <laughs> A lot of folks don't realize that what they really need is to know that God really loves them and they're really forgiven. That's the kind of peace he's talking about here. Uh, um, verse 19 of Colossians in your New Testament, chapter 1. For in him, the Lord Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, there's that the deity of Jesus Christ. God became a human. And through him to reconcile to himself, look at he's reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. This is the peace he's talking about. See this? Making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what the angel's talking about when he says peace on earth. He's talking about this supernatural thing that happens when God, through Christ, pays for people's sins. So anybody that comes in then has peace with God. Then they can have peace with each other. Because God comes first, and then we can have peace with each other. And his kingdom will be that. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Keep reading verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his in the body of his flesh by his death. That baby grew up and died for our sins. That's the point. In order to present you, Christian friend, Holy and blameless and above reproach. Are you holy and blameless and above reproach? Really? Are you holy and blameless and above reproach? You're thinking to yourself, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. My friend, 
if you come to Jesus Christ, do you see the kind of peace you can have? He says, because of what I've done for you, I give you my righteousness and I take your sin on me. You, you will be holy and blameless and above reproach when you stand before the Father. What an amazing, wonderful promise. No wonder the angel says, peace on earth. It's this kind of peace he's talking about. But it's not just this. It's not just peace that we have with the Lord now. It's also a promise, and we don't have time to turn, but it's also a promise of a new kind of peace in a brand new creation. Remember I said, um, once God became a human, it was inevitable that the entire universe would be recreated, the last two chapters of the Revelation. If you turn there, you'll see the symbolic language, but it's a complete recreation of the universe, and that new kingdom, which is also described in the Old Testament, its future, that is a kingdom of absolute, utter peace. Passages like in Isaiah 11, where it says they beat their swords into plowshares and so on and so forth. These are all promises that will be fulfilled in the future. When you come to the Lord, you immediately have peace with God, and then you have a promise of citizenship in a kingdom so peaceful and so loving, it would blow your mind. Is that good news? Yeah. No wonder the angel is saying to the scruffy shepherds who really didn't get it all the first time around. They got, as we say, they got more on them than in them. They went and told other people, not knowing entirely what it was, but we know. We know because of the resurrection. That's the peace he's talking about. He's talking about supernatural peace when we come into the Lord and then we become a member of this brand new life. So a guarantee of peace we can't create. Secondly, a promise of a joy that is not sourced in this age. Here's the problem with the joys that are sourced in this age. They stop in this age. And there are some joys in this age. Praise God when we have them. But have you noticed that they don't last that long? There's a joy, this is why he says, this is why we sing joy to the world. This is why the angel is saying, I have great news of what? Great joy. Because there is a joy in God that is anchored in him that transcends the evil of this age, of this world. Um, I'm going to read to you from a, a quote. Uh, this is from Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God. Um, but he talks about how... The evil of this world gets turned inside out by the power of the gospel. And he's quoting from Lord of the Rings. Do you guys remember Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee? You guys, raise your hand if you remember Sam Gamgee. Good. Okay. He discovers, you remember the scene where he discovers that Gandalf isn't dead, his friend Gandalf? And this is what he says. He discovers that Gandalf is, is still alive and he cries out, this is right out of the movie, I thought you were dead. But then I thought, I thought I was dead too, he says. And then he says this, is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having been broken and lost. Because it was broken first, the joy of restoration is infinitely greater. If you've never been hungry or broken then when you receive nourishment, you don't appreciate it. If you've been hungry and you've been broken and then you're healed, all of a sudden you appreciate it infinitely deeper. That's that's what's going to happen. That's the joy that is not sourced in this age. 
C.S. Lewis said this, quote, They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn the agony into glory. Say, is there anyone else in the whole wide world that promises this kind of thing? No, only Jesus Christ. Only the gospel. That's why the angels, that's why the angels. They said, we have a guarantee of a peace that, that we cannot create, or we're giving you a peace you cannot create, a promise of joy that cannot be coerced um, in this age and is not sourced in this age. And third, a gift of life that does not depend on us. Look at the term soter, rescuer, Messiah, and and Lord. He brings his life to us. That's a rescue that you don't do, and that gives you a life that that you don't sustain. He sustains the life completely. Because he says, are you still in Colossians? Sorry, go back to Luke. He says, He says, um, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That means God himself is the one who accomplishes the work on in the lives of the people that come to him. And that is a life that's inside of you as a believer that you cannot produce and you cannot sustain. He sustains it. I had a conversation with a guy not too long ago. He said, can I lose my salvation? And I said, well, who made you saved in the first place? Who made you regenerated? Who regenerated you? He says, well, God did. God regenerated me. I said, is God an abortionist? Did he put new life in you and then go and take it out? Did he give it to you in the first place because you deserved it? No. The angels come and they say to scruffy shepherds who, they're not religious guys. Those guys weren't having a prayer meeting out there. Into this darkness, into this scruffy world, God says, I have already done something. And it will give you life that you yourself don't have. I will give you the life. Later in John's gospel, Jesus says the same thing to to Nicodemus. That is, no wonder the angels are saying, you guys, you guys. I don't know if they said you guys, but they're talking to, you know, normal humans and they're saying, look at this good news. God is accomplishing the savior. The single handed rescuer is being born right now. Look up. There's good things happening here. How can you become a person with whom God is pleased? Now, here's what everybody thinks. Oh, I'll be good. I'll go to church. I'll, uh, I'll start tithing. In fact, some people think that all they have to do is give money and then that, that'll get God off their back. That's not true. Um, you don't need to do anything. I mean, I'm not opposed to giving money. Okay. God loveth a cheerful giver and also receiveth from a grump. Okay. But that's not the point. See, people think, well, I'll give, I'll do, I'll, I'll act good, I'll, I'll be better, and God will look at me and he'll say, oh, yeah, you're good enough, okay, get it. That is not what's going on here. What is happening here is that God is doing it, and he's the one who actually rescues single-handedly. That's why the angels are here. That's why what they're, what they're guaranteeing is a gift of life that doesn't depend on us, and you see it here in the, these verses and many others. I uh, talked to a little girl years ago. I was preaching right here on a Sunday morning. And I was finished, and everyone's talking, you know, and it's after church. And this little girl came up to me. She must have been about eight. And she was holding a Bible, clutching it to herself, okay? And this, this Bible was about the size of her entire upper body, 
It was a serious Bible. I'll never forget it because it brought tears to my eyes. And she looked up at me with these beautiful little eyes, just honest as could be. And she said to me, I want to be a Christian, but I don't know if I can do everything. I said, honey, you should have been in church today. No, (laughs) I didn't say that. I had just gotten finished preaching to her parents about the fact that, that God gives it. I was, it was so, such a privilege to, to kind of get down in front of this little girl and say, honey, listen, God has done everything already for you. That's the announcement of the good news. That's the joy that we have. God has already done it. All you have to do is trust the Lord to do it. She looked at me and she said, really? And I prayed with her. You know, we are like that. We say, well, I, I want to do what's right. Well, God, and the Lord says, I've done what's right. And I'm giving this to you. You have a savior being born. Go there. See what God is doing. How do you do this? Well, simple trust in Jesus Christ. That's how. Simple trust. You start trusting that God can save you through Christ. You come to him, he saves you personally. And you start, and you say to him, Lord, I'm sorry, you're right, I'm wrong. And I don't know all the ways I am wrong, but there's a lot. Would you please just let me rest in your grace from now on? I trust the Lord Jesus Christ. God is pleased with that. Not with the good deeds, but simple trust in who this child is who grew up and we know who he is. Is that true? Is that true of you? Or has it kind of worn off? That that initial rush of being forgiven, that initial sense that, oh, thank you, Lord, that you love me, that Jesus Christ has accomplished my salvation. Thank you. Well, Christmas is a good time to get back to that. Jot down and read, we won't turn, no time, but jot down John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. They were born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. And Matthew eleven twenty-five. that's 25 to 30. That's where Jesus said, if you are weary and, lab- and, and heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest. <laughs>